Well, tis the season for celebrations. Christmas parties are pretty much behind us, and New Year's Eve is just around the corner, and who doesn't like a party? Of course, I'm not using the term as some would. Some think of partying as times of drunkenness and debauchery. But as the Apostle Paul made perfectly clear, those who practice such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Unless, like the Corinthians, those things are in the past. And you have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Having been washed, sanctified, and set apart by the spirit of God, however, does not mean you can't go to a party. Jesus did. Shortly after his baptism in water and the spirit, Jesus went to a party in Cana. And it was there he performed his first miracle. Now John is the only one to record this event, so he apparently felt it was important to tell us about it. So let's see if we can't figure out why it's important. We're into the second chapter now of John's gospel. And the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. After being together for several days, Jesus and his first six disciples come to Cana of Galilee, Nathaniel's hometown, to attend a wedding. Now, the exact location of Cana is uncertain, but most feel it was a village not far from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. We're not told whose wedding it was, but it may have been a relative of Jesus because Mary seems to be acting as more than a guest. Some early writings even suggest that the mother of the groom was Jesus' aunt, one of Mary's sisters. Whatever the details, it was a wedding. And weddings were big social events in Jesus' day. The celebration would usually last a week and would take place in the home of the couple that had just been married. Instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house. They were treated like a king and a queen, often wearing crowns and sitting on thrones, but they and their family were also responsible for entertaining the guests and for keeping them adequately supplied with food and drink. Well, horror of horrors, they ran out of wine. Now, if we run out of food, we'd be embarrassed. But in Jesus' day, this would have been a major social catastrophe. 
In fact, one ancient rabbi even taught it was thievery to invite guests and not make adequate provision for them. Well, Mary couldn't let that happen. So she hinted to Jesus that he do something. What she expected him to do, we have no way of knowing. Now, I seriously doubt that he had performed miracles to provide food and drink for their home in Nazareth. In fact, there is no evidence that he performed any miracles before this, in spite of the ludicrous childhood stories found in the Gnostic Gospels that are often marketed as newly discovered accounts of Jesus' life on a, on a regular basis. Maybe all she intended was for Jesus to send a disciple out to buy some more wine. But then again, maybe she thought this would be a good time for him to do something special. Now that he was beginning his public ministry. Whatever her intention, Jesus knew she wanted him to do something. And his response actually shocks us when we read it in English anyway. Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now it sounds so harsh, almost like a reprimand but her reaction doesn't show any offense, so we better look deeper into his comment. By calling her woman instead of mother, he is apparently distancing himself a bit from her. But he also called her woman when entrusting her into John's care from the cross, so it must not have been a cold, uncaring way to refer to a loved one. Besides, reading the word instead of hearing it spoken does keep us from noting the tone of voice used. You know, it could have been spoken with both affection and a bit of frustration. You know, woman, what do I have to do with you? Furthermore, what do I have to do with you might mean something other than how it's translated here. In fact, a better translation of the Greek is actually what to me and to you. That's all it says. So it can speak of his relationship to his mother. You know, what do I have to do with you? Or it can speak of their mutual relationship to the problem. You know, well, what is that to us? But neither sounds extremely charitable. But yet it didn't offend Mary, so it shouldn't offend us either. But then he added, my hour has not yet come. Now, his hour usually refers to the time of Jesus taking on the role of Messiah, especially the hour of his death. And that may be what he means here, that by performing a miracle, he might prematurely announce his Messiahship. But he could also simply be indicating that he didn't want to steal the show. You know, Mary may have been suggesting that this would be a good time for him to take center stage, but Jesus didn't want to take the attention off the couple. It was their hour, not his. Whatever the intent of the words, it's apparent that Jesus was hesitant to act, but did so. And Mary knew he was going to do something because she instructed the servants to do whatever he said. Let's see what he did, verses 6 through 8. 
Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Now, John begins by telling us about the pots. So there's obviously some significance to the fact that there were six water pots and that they were used for Jewish purification rituals. Now, the number six signified incompleteness or imperfection. Seven is the perfect number. Six falls short. And the fact that these pots were used for ceremonial washing before the meal and between courses says something about the need for purification. We'll come back to this later. But for now, let's just assume that there must have been some significance to the nature of the pots, or John would not have been so explicit in describing them. Anyway, they were big pots, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus told the servants to fill them with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he said, draw out now. The word some has been added by the translators and gives the impression that they were told to draw out some of the water they had just put into the pots. It's possible, however, that he was telling them to draw more out of the well. In fact, the words draw out are more often used when referring to drawing out of a well than dipping out of a pot. The bottom line is that we can't be sure if the miracle took place in the pots or as the water was being drawn out. If it took place in the pots, Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which seems excessive. If the water turned to wine as it was being drawn from the well, he would have made only what was needed as it was needed. Either way, however, we do know that Jesus turned the water into wine. Let's take a look at the wine. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. The head waiter was shocked by the quality of the wine Jesus made. It was the custom to serve the best wine first, and then after the guests had drunk freely to bring out the cheap wine, when they really wouldn't care. But this was good wine. And though I hate to admit it, it was wine. The head waiter wouldn't have been impressed by grape juice or Kool-Aid. Jesus made wine. 
I wish it had been Dr. Pepper, but it wasn't. It was wine. Now, most of you know how I feel about alcohol. I can't just say Jesus made wine and leave it there. It's time for a little side trip, a brief study on wine and what the Bible has to say about its use, just in case you're planning to indulge on New Year's Eve. First, there can be no doubt that Jesus made alcoholic wine. He did not make Welch's. Wine is fermented grape juice, and it therefore does have an alcoholic content. We must also admit that Jesus did drink wine. It doesn't actually say he drank some of the wine he had made, but we know he drank wine when he instituted the Lord's Supper. However, it was the common practice to water down wine that was being used for ceremonial purposes with three or four parts of water to every part of wine. So Welch's, which was originally produced to avoid using alcoholic wine in communion, is actually closer to what Jesus used than the Mogan David that my dad occasionally drank. But it was wine. We also know that Jesus drank wine at social events. In fact, he was accused of being a gluttonous man and a drunkard because he came eating and drinking and befriending tax gatherers and sinners. He wasn't an ascetic like John the Baptist. So who was right, John or Jesus? Should we drink or not? Is wine evil? Well, actually, wine is pictured both as a blessing and as a curse in Scripture. In Psalm 104.15, God is credited with making wine which makes man's heart glad. And in Psalm 63, we read, Thou hast made thy people experience hardship. Thou hast given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. So scripture does acknowledge wine as a gift, a blessing that makes hearts glad, not drunk or silly, but glad, like any other good gift. But it also gives ample warnings about the misuse of wine. In fact, the first time it's mentioned is when Noah planted a vineyard after the flood and made wine and got drunk, which led to the curse on Canaan. And the writer of Proverbs gives us a graphic description of someone with an alcohol problem who has woe, who has sorrow. Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. 
And you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea and like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. We're also told in Proverbs 20, verse 1, that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And drunkenness is listed as a deed of the flesh in Galatians 5. And as we've already noted, those who practice drunkenness, who make it a habitual practice to get drunk, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are ample warnings about the dangers of alcohol. And drunkenness, overindulgence in alcohol, is prohibited. No questions about that. We also discover that some in spiritual leadership were told to abstain from using alcoholic beverages altogether. Old Testament priests were forbidden to drink when serving in the tabernacle. And those under a Nazarite vow dedicated to God's service were to abstain from wine, strong drink, and vinegar, as well as grapes in all its forms. Before John the Baptist was born, the angel told Zacharias that John would be great in the sight of the Lord and that he would drink no wine or liquor. Elders are not to be addicted to wine, literally to be seen alongside wine. And deacons are not to be seen along much wine. Having said that, it is obvious that the moderate use of alcohol for most people does fall into the area of what might be called scruples. So there is room for opinion on this matter. And I have to allow you the liberty to decide for yourself whether or not you will take an occasional drink. I do want to remind you, however, that even though some things are lawful, they are not necessarily profitable, and we must be mastered by nothing. We may not be mastered by anything. You know, far too many people have been unexpectedly mastered by alcohol. And even if it doesn't master us, if our drinking causes someone else to stumble, we better consider giving it up. Romans 14 deals with this in detail. Well, I think I've said enough. We can go back to the text now and conclude our little detour by simply stating that Jesus did not make wine to encourage its use. He did so. John says, to signify something as a sign to those who would understand it. Let's see what that is. 
This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The other gospel writers call miracles mighty works, but John calls them signs. And he recorded seven of them to confirm who Jesus is and to teach us spiritual truths. He recorded Jesus turning water into wine, healing the official's son, healing the helpless man at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, giving sight to a blind man, and raising Lazarus. Some of these signs are followed by teaching that explains their significance, and some are left without comment for us to discern on our own. Apparently, John felt we'd figure this one out on our own. And while there may be several things we could draw from this sign, when used in the Lord's Supper, wine represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for our purification. Perhaps this first miracle was his way to show the disciples that the old purification rituals found their fulfillment in him, that in and of themselves they purified no one, that only the Messiah would be able to cleanse men of their sin, and it would take his blood to get the job done. Whether they understood this or not, this miracle did confirm to the disciples that they had found the Messiah. In it, they got a glimpse of his glory, and through it, they believed in him. It was a miracle. And miracles are intended to turn our eyes upon Jesus. So let's put the controversy about drinking behind us and simply turn our eyes upon Jesus as we enter into a new year. Amen? Let's stand.